because we are not only progressive Christian experts, but music experts as well. So, <laughs> not me. <laughs> Hello, everyone, and welcome. We are Irenacast. I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. I'm Casey. And this is Rajiv. On the first and third Tuesday of every month, we bring to you our perspectives on theology and culture from a post-evangelical lens. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. This week, we are continuing... Our conversation on white supremacy, and uh, I think last episode we we grabbed the low-hanging low fruit of evangelicalism and white supremacy, and uh, this week we're going to be talking about uh, white supremacy in progressive Christianity, or left progressive, or left Christianity, or liberal Christianity, or however you want to put your label on that particular thing. And for our segment, we're bringing back a segment we did a few weeks ago called Playlist. And we're going to be picking our favorite protest songs. And that'll be fun. I'm interested. So, to... Yeah, stick around for that. Yes. And add some songs to your list. Should be a lot of fun. So let's let's get into this particular conversation. We have all come from certain branches of evangelicalism, certain branches of conservative Christianity, and we have all found ourselves in progressive Christianity, uh, the majority of you all in a particular denomination of progressive Christianity. And I th- I, I'll, I'll speak for me, and then you guys can affirm or disagree if you'd like we'll from your experience. You. Oh, thank you. This is really what the show's about. I've set it up mm-hmm. so that everyone supports me and lifts me up. Just like society, because I'm a straight white male. <laughs> okay. Well, that's wow. a great way to start out. <laughs> okay. So I think that when I transitioned out of evangelicalism or conservative Christianity, I had kind of rose-colored glasses, right? It's like I finally found the the holy grail, way. so to speak, the way, the right way to interpret, the right way to be. And when I was in my first church as a staff member, I started seeing, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> this, it's, it's, it's not perfect. Uh, there's some stuff here, uh, more so in the latter part of my time uh, at, at my last church. But yeah, so I, I guess kind of with that journey in mind, first of all, is, is that kind of everyone else's basic experience is that you kind of went in with rose-colored glasses and, and things changed? No. No. Okay. <laughs> no. When when you see a predominant a group that's predominantly white, you know it's got problems. Okay. This is a very okay. This is very important for us to hear. I think uh, at, at least from my experience, right? <laughs> I'm like, okay, you know, but at least you know, the 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 gauge for me is like, are they are they aware of the problems or are they trying to fix them? And and I found uh, that to be the case in progressive Christianity that they're neither aware nor willing to change or <laughs> no, that there, there is a willingness to, to be aware and a willingness to work on it. It's not like it's an automatic thing. Like everybody's aware and everybody's working on it, but that there is an openness, there's dialogue around it. There's sermons about it. It's, it's part of, 
the fabric of progressive Christian circles that I've been in contact with, which is very different. Everywhere else, it seems to be more denial. I don't think that's a given across the board in progressive Christian circles. We've, we've been involved in very, you know, like three progressive Christian communities. And that, that was certainly as we were looking, I was one of the, uh, one of the yardsticks, you know, when deciding whether or not we were going to be a part of that community was their, their, uh, awareness around race issue, issues of race whether or not people could even call themselves white. I think that illustrates like just how hard it is to talk about anything with a, a broad stroke, like progressive Christianity. Well, you're talking about a lot of Christianities and a lot of people or even one denomination. We have lots of different churches within one denomination that think differently and they're structured differently. And then even inside of a, even inside of a church I've worked in that says one thing from a pulpit or has a certain policy Everyone in the church understands it differently and applies it differently. So I think you know, this conversation can hit so many different levels. And um, like Jeff, like your experience, you went to a totally different denomination than we did. And within that domination, there's probably a lot of diversity of experience. So I don't know where we want to land and talk about, but I've encountered at least what appears to me like vestiges of outright white supremacy at kind of every space that I've been in. So I, I don't know if I have like the tools to be able to assess where exactly white supremacy is in all of the different realms I'm participating and what needs to be done about it. Um, I'm still figuring all that out, but I know I do know some of it when I see it. So I think that's where I'm at. When we talk about um, progressive Christianity, what cracks me up is I think many of us are referring to Protestant uh, mainline churches <laughs> who ha ha historically have not been uh, progressive, you know, um, they just look progressive in the face of, of evangelicalism. And I think that's something for us to really take notice of, right? I have served as a youth pastor in a Presbyterian setting. I have done ministry in a Methodist setting, in a Lutheran setting, and now in the United Church of Christ. And I think we have to be very clear in in talking to our you know our audience who who is who some of them have never been outside of the evangelical world. And if we're pointing to Protestant churches and saying that's where the progressives are, we don't want to deceive them because there's still a lot of work to be done. And um, and yes, indeed, there are some who are pretty progressive and doing some amazing things. But these are systems who benefited from slavery. The Congregationalists are the ones who <laughs> destroyed entire people groups and brought Jesus here to this continent. There's a, and I'm not trying to be a negative Nancy, but it's true. I, I just find it interesting when we're talking about progressive Christianity, who we are pointing to are the very people who um, per, like perpetuated and created some of the systems in which we are seeking to deconstruct, starting with Martin Luther himself, who was anti-Semitic. Well, I, I just want to clarify. I don't, I don't think I've ever equated mainline Protestantism with progressive Christian. Um, I think progressive Christian is a pretty distinct claim that some congregations make, and in order in order for me to consider them such, it would have to be explicit. Because when you explicitly claim that, then you're also opening yourself up to 
to having some accountability and pushback to those values that one is claiming. And my experience has been there is an invitation for the pushback. And when you do push back, rarely do you find that they will receive it. Absolutely. And that that's the that's the one thing that I that really settled in my mind as I was thinking about this conversation coming up is that it feels to me like self-described progressive Christian institutions are very concerned with feeling morally pure. Tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I feel like the spaces I'm in, they care about their own feeling about being right or on the right side of something rather than it just, it's almost a veneer kind of thing. And so when someone stands up and says, Hey, you might be wrong. All that comes crumbling down because now you're invading my feeling of the fact that I felt like I was morally pure. It's just funny that instead of in terms of like, I don't know, uh, monogamy, now it's about racism and homophobia. And now like we want to be feeling pure, just like in other circles, you know, they had different purity codes and that, and that is great, but those feelings of purity don't really do anything. In in fact, it may obscure some of the work that needs to be done. I think you're totally onto something there, Alan, for sure. I think that, you know, part of being anti-racist is to be okay with being confronted with your racism as a white person. I think Christianity in general struggles with that. There isn't a change when you move from evangelical Christianity to progressive Christianity because in both in both settings, white people want to be comforted, and and Christianity, you know, we've we've done a great job of sort of co opting the whole gospel to comfort white people in this com- in in this country, and it doesn't really matter which church, which white church you go to. There are other forms of Christianities out there in America, thank God, besides white Christian, and I think that's important to say as well. Though whiteness. The message of whiteness uh, is, it, you know, it's it's so pervasive, so pervasive across the board. And if someone is coming into this conversation on this episode right now and hasn't listened to previous episodes where we talked about why whiteness is not just problematic, but violence toward people, uh, just go back and listen to some of the previous episodes if you want to cover some of that territory. Because it feels like this is successive right like like now we're getting onto something a little different and a little more specific and we'll put in the show notes at irenicast.com slash 171 uh, a list of some of those episodes that that we think would be a good important part of this particular conversation so you can you can check those out but i think alan what you were describing is something that's a universal dynamic in any group it's like wanting to be in the right group you know, slap whatever label you want on the group. I think that's that exists everywhere. In the progressive church, folks want to be more values-driven and foundational, and maybe the lack of acknowledgement around how much feeling right is part of it might might be overlooked a little bit. Yeah, and that's not wrong, right? Like, we shouldn't problematize a universal human experience of wanting to be in the right group and go through, you know, to contribute to our own survival. It's just not always helpful. Right. Especially when you start condemning other people, which the progressive church does a good job of doing. You can't listen if you think you're right. 
I, I, it seems like that would be not possible. And white progressive Christians are as much in the need of being in a listening stance as any other white person. So in, in your experience, how does white supremacy manifest differently than in, in more left-leaning or progressive Christian circles as opposed to right-wing circles? Can I make a, a sort of like a, something I notice is, you know, um, in the evangelical world, we send people to Mexico to build houses. We send them all over the place to to share the love of Jesus and to save people's souls. And they take pictures and they come home and they, you know, you know, do whatever. But um, in the same way, I, I see this in in some of my colleagues right now in the Black Lives Matter movement, where they're showing up to the front lines of protests and wanting to be sure that they're in all the pictures. I mean, Alan and I and Bonnie have been at protests where we laugh because there's a specific person I'm thinking of who literally. Are you sure you want to say any, that? <laughs> any time there's a camera around, you can be sure that this pastor yeah. is going to be right there in the taking the picture so that they might be seen. It's that same concept of like, we're here to fix it. We're here to show up and instead of taking a posture of listening, like Bonnie was saying, and asking where can we fit into this movement? How can we honor and support the leaders of this movement? It is white clergy who are co-opting, trying, seeking to co-opt this movement and, you know, are the ones who are meeting with police, who are trying to, you know, um, bring the conversation together. And and there are a lot of people in the Black Lives Matter movement who are disgusted by clergy at this point because they are seeking to uh, derail what is being done. And it's telling because it's not just progressive Christians that are doing that. It's evangelicals too. I mean, they're, how many times have people postured themselves to be like, we're the answer to racism. <laughs> like, we the church are the answer to racism in the world. And I want to be like... <laughs> the fuck you are <laughs> like really <laughs> like and, yeah we can't tackle racism as a society like you have to own this too out of everything you know well, so Casey, I, I get that feeling y- your point about that that one person who shows up to these things everybody listening to this who's been part of these movements has that one or two people in their communities i mean it's just it's just there but you know i think some of that comes out of a desperate desire to try to be helpful. And and folks sometimes just don't know how to be helpful in a way that's received as being helpful by others. And and I, I don't know how to be a help other than I mean sometimes you just got to stick it out with people till the light bulb turns on. I think that's a very generous lens and, you know, I think it's very generous for me. It's something like that's connected to whiteness. Um, that helpfulness is also a part of whiteness. It's a savior complex sort of thing, or like a, you need me sort of thing. Yes. People are trying to be helpful, but what is, I mean, what is the motive for being helpful? Is it because, um, you're trying to legitimately co-create and partner, or is it because you think you know the way? You know, white man's burden. I think that's a big part of progressive Christianity. To to be honest with you, I you know having been, you know I'm an immigrant uh, from a colonized nation, and missionaries came and 
shared the gospel with both sides of my family tree, my parents. And, um, you know, they came with the gospel in hand. And where I, I think the, and, and there was rallying around that concrete uh, set of fundamental beliefs. And progressive Christians don't necessarily evangelize with a concrete set of fundamental beliefs, but they do evangelize with culture. It's like, you, you can be like us. You can have all the things we have. Um, and, and here's how we do this together. Can you say that again? <laughs> <laughs> Seriously. Yeah. I mean, evangelize culture because the, the mm -hmm. doctrines aren't quite as central. But you go to any, every church that I've been to except for a couple, you go into the churches that, that are labeled progressive churches. It feels like a shrine to white supremacy. I mean, you have pomp, circumstance, you have a pipe organ, which by nature, definition, are very expensive to purchase and maintain. And the people who I know a lot of organists, and I like them all, every single one of them, but, you know, they're more expensive than someone who plays acoustic guitar. So it, it, it just sort of goes on. It just sort of, it feels uh, like incongruous. Like, wow, this doesn't feel like the world is invited in. And it's resistant to change because it makes people uncomfortable. So when I hear like, yeah, we've been equating white supremacy and progressive circles with like white comfortability. And I've noticed when whenever things do change up inside of a progressive space, it's just it's just so funny. Like I, I, I try to tell I bring in friends, I bring in friends who are not Christians, people who are Christians. And they come to my church and they're like, this is the weirdest thing I've ever experienced because <laughs> right. they're progressive because they're 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 loving all of these people who like all the other Christians hate. But they end up like who moved my cheese in every single moment <laughs> the, like the, of the church's life down to yep. the very core. Yep. Yeah. Well, and how and how our systems are structured are rooted in supremacy. The like the Constitution, Robert's Rules of Order. I was going to ask Bonnie to talk about that um, because this is like her. Wait, are we killing Robert's Rules of Order? Oh I'm so my down god! For that. Please, what Let's did you say? Who, who's Rob? <laughs> what was your post, Bonnie? I said, "Who who the f is Robert, and why are we still obeying his rules?" <laughs> I think it's a very good question, especially in light of white supremacy. Oh, the guy he created that in a church in San Francisco. Some admiral from the Navy in 1896 or something like that. And we just keep updating it and updating it and updating it. But anyway, um, I, you know, as I'm listening to you talk, I, I think what what's hard for white people to really examine is we've all been taught that white is best. I think when we, when we use words like white supremacy, we can sort of, intellectually distance ourselves from what that really means. What it means is every single one of us has been taught that white is best and that our job is to keep that always true. And what would happen if we stopped believing that? What would happen to our systems? What would happen to our structures? What would happen to our relationships if we stopped believing that? And I don't know what the progressive Christian church is even asking that question. Well, no, nobody is. They know best. And so anybody who wants to be in relationship with them 
it's sort of like, we know best and here's the boundaries. We love to talk about boundaries as white people. I mean, we have boundary training. That's part of our, we put everybody through boundary training. And who decides what are the benchmarks for what is, what the boundaries, what boundaries are healthy or unhealthy? It's so white. So I've been in those for like, <laughs> I've been in those for like six or six years or seven years now. And there have been moments where like a person of color will stand up and be like, well, that's not my experience. And all the white people are like really uncomfortable, like looking at them and, you know, you're absolutely, you're onto something there. There's a huge dynamic that's a part of that. I experienced that even in, in queer community. I remember a few years ago being in a, because every three years in our denomination, we have to take a boundary training. And a few years ago, I was at a training um, and I was sitting next to another queer person and we're hearing the things that they're saying. And I'm looking over like, this does not apply. Or this is not mm-hmm. how um, how we function. I I just felt this like otherness happen immediately. Of like, I can't sit here and listen to this because this is not real. This isn't how my community works. So I can't even imagine, you know, what people of color feel. It's worse, I'm sure. But I, there was just this moment of like, this does not apply. This is not how it will work. Yeah. So as a, as a non UCC person, what is boundary training? Like, what is the purpose and the goal of this? I feel like I just was, you know, uh, privy to some inside language and uh, maybe our listeners feel the same way. So let's, <laughs> yeah. let's clarify what we mean when we're talking about uh, boundary training. If someone wants to briefly explain those, the structure and the reason behind this. A really generous read would just be that there are clergy who make mistakes because The ethics that they've learned are very specific to their life growing up. And now they're in a wider world. I keep saying that. I got to stop saying that. A larger world. And so they they have to, or for some people, they haven't updated their ethics in a long time. And so they go to these boundary trainings and then they realize, oh, wow, there's all these questions around how to be uh, a good minister and not cross like you know, the, the, the famous stuff, you don't use people in your congregation. You don't use your congregation as your therapist. You don't like, you know, you don't cross certain ethical lines. And so it creates this community of pra- best practices that kind of, because there's so much gray area inside of ministry that like, you're really out on a ledge sometimes by yourselves. And we've experienced that even between us, like when we've had conversations. From from that brief explanation, it sounds like it's basic ethics boundaries. So how is something like that turned into white supremacy and how is... Like, give me a, a concrete example. Okay, my, my example of what I was talking, what came to my mind was like, there was this thing where you never give your money to people in your congregation. So this is what was being said. I was listening and everyone's like, yeah, you should never personally give you your own money as a, as a clergy person to someone in the congregation when, who's in need, because that establishes a special relationship. They're now like dependent upon you. And now you have a relationship with them that you don't have with other people. And you're supposed to treat everybody kind of equally. So that's what everyone's saying. And then someone stood up who was you know, not a white person. And they were like, well, that's not my experience. Like, that's not how we treat each other. And if some, if someone needs something like that, I'm going to give it to them. And it, it was really uncomfortable because it was like, yeah, we all sat back. And at least for me, I was like, yeah, why are we like interpreting all of uh, what it means to be a clergy through this really individualistic capitalistic lens. And that, that was kind of mind blowing. So just stuff like that, determining what, what practices are best. So kind of just listening to to all these perspectives, it's interesting to me, and these are just things that are going through my head. So these are fresh thoughts. I'm just trying to put this all together. Um, 
but I've Sounds long like a cool podcast. What's that? Fresh thoughts. <laughs> oh my gosh! Fresh thoughts with your boy Al. Is <laughs> <laughs> that's his vegan endeavor? <laughs> oh my gosh! Um, all right, uh, so. So just just putting this all together, I've long said that one of the most striking differences for me between my two experiences on these sides of Christianity has been the the worship experience and the theology. Where in in evangelicalism, it was very like loose and liberal with worship style, but very rigid and strict with theology. And I found the opposite to be true in progressive circles or mainline circles, where the 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 worship is very strict and rigid, and the theology is very open. And freeing. And Rajiv, going back to what you were saying before, it seems like I, I'm, th- I'm thinking back to just even just the, the, the worship experience in the two churches that I've been to. And, you know, you're talking about the organ and how expensive that is and how that that is a, a worship experience that requires conformity. And that a lot of times the evangelical worship experience was was based in appropriation, at least from the music style. Or even the preaching style, a lot of it was borrowed from in, in my Pentecostal background. So this may not be true across the board, uh, but that there was a lot of appropriation from like gospel from the black church. There was this exoticizing a lot of times in that particular thing. And it was interesting to me that and then going back to what we're talking about, the idea of like resources and being a help and that the the, the white version in both camps of being helpful is making better. Right. So that we've, we have this perspective of, well, I heard this, but we can make it better because we have the resources to do it. And then the other side, well, we can, we can make this better. I can be a better help because I have the resources to do it. It's, it's interesting that in all these places, how much what we have monetarily influences our posture and how we approach our, our, our way of helping, so to speak. And I think when we say make it better, we mean make it more white-like. Right. And we would say that that's more – and that's I think better. that that's – yeah, that's better and that's yeah. that's what normal. Like we've normalized whiteness and I think that that's, those semantics, people are like, I'm not white. This is just what we do and that there's trying to get people to make that leap to we've made normal white. Like that's that's the problem is that there – I don't know. There's no normal. <laughs> like it can't be a normal. I, I find I found it really interesting. Um at the start of like this sort of like protesting um, George Floyd's death, all the white people who've come out in droves and have been like, yeah, like we're here, let's do it. What should we do? And then when Black Lives Matter says defund the police, there's like, oh, I mean, is there another way? Like, and, and they're saying, no, we need to defund the police. We need to de- deconstruct these systems. And you can see very quickly this renegotiation because it's yeah we want to we want to support what can you know what can we do right that's the question what can we do well you can listen and you can help us deconstruct these systems yeah well what can we do other than that (laughs) like we can post some really good stuff on facebook how does that sound we can have really nice polite conversations and try to encourage unity like all those things of like well let's do this peacefully and Right. And that's what that's what Bonnie was like getting at. And if I heard you right, Bonnie, is that it's still a white institution asking how can we be a better white institution rather than asking how can we be an institution that's not white? And and so there's always always been a relationship between white and non-white spaces. Like there's always been that that tension. 
and how do we relate to like, you know, non-white entities or like institutions or, you know, people groups and stuff rather than that more basic question of frankly, desegregation. And I, I don't know as a white person, I'm not trying to say we should desegregate Sundays and we should, cause you know, white people have a history of invading spaces and turning them white and it's not safe whatsoever when, when that happens. But frankly, like, you know, we still have segregated neighborhoods for a very historical reason that absolutely was part of our government funded building projects that have contributed to the fact that we still have segregated neighborhoods. It doesn't have to be that way. Like schools, you know, were have become more desegregated over time and there's just no like huge put the only push that I've heard for something like that inside of a progressive space isn't necessarily changing the institution from being white. It's still a white church that believes in uh, diversity. Do you get what I'm trying to say? Like, I don't know if that makes sense. One of our favorite words in the progressive Christian world is inclusive. What does that mean? That is not the end point at all. Like that's exactly, that's what I'm talking about. It, It means that we'll include you in what we're doing. Well, it, it's, yeah, sometimes, sometimes it feels like diversity in the white church, and this is across the board, feels like um, we want a, a whole spectrum of skin tones. We want a, a, in the pews to make us feel better. And, you know, at our potlucks, we want some spice. And that makes us feel better that we, we have some... <laughs> exotic <laughs> something or other going on to validate that. our efforts. I love that. No, that's, <laughs> that's great. <laughs> like, cause that's, that's so emblematic. Like just that, that whole thing of like what, you know, what we put, we, we have our nation flags out there and we like all those, that's right. That's great. <laughs> that's so exactly. true. <laughs> right. Uh, but I, I want to give a shout out. A big shout out to the Minneapolis City Council. They just voted 12 to 0 to abolish the police department and to replace it with the Department of Community Safety to take a more holistic approach. And this is Minneapolis. This isn't Atlanta. This isn't D.C. This isn't New York. This is a place that has a history of problems with black people and they're waking up. And unfortunately, it took the one more death of another innocent black person to to open some eyes and and it was filmed. I mean, let's be honest, it was the filming and the sharing of that filming that has that has finally gotten us mobilized, but change is possible. And I would add to that, I, I, maybe this I can edit this out, but I would add to that that it's not just that. It's that the response has been constant, the response has been in enduring, the response has been tireless with all the protests, uh, particularly motivated by Black Lives Matter and how how much of a difference that sustained work has done over the last few weeks, despite the circumstances of the world that we're in and to be able to juggle your, to be able to juggle your hurt, your pain of having to see this again, and then immobilize and do the work that has been done is unprecedented and just wow. I think too, one of the gifts of the pandemic is that we, the, the lie of individualism is beginning to erode in our minds. And when that, as that begins to erode and we begin to denounce this idea of individualism, 
we can then take a look at other people's experience besides our own and see them as a distinct other, not in an us and them kind of a way, but like you have your own life, your, your own. It's not an extension of me or a projection of me. It's your own becoming process. And I care about it. And I, I want to do something about it. And I think that the pandemic, if there's any like gifts that could come out of it, that could potentially be one of them. And it, it, we, we all, we're all just sitting around too. We sheltering at home and not in that rat race in the same way that we usually are. So we have time to, to think and to be affected by things that are going on in the world. I agree. I think big shifts happen in moments like this, right? I mean, um, it was 100 years ago this year that women won the right to vote in the midst of a pandemic. Um, there are images of women with their faces covered protesting for their right to vote. The, these are the moments where, where we are able to take a moment and notice how interconnected we are. Women were the first people to protest outside the White House. So here we are 100 years later, um, continuing to push up against a system that does not work for everyone. And I think that real change is happening because we have the time to notice i think people need to also know that the the pushback has arrived like just this last week i've in all of my reading and connections seen a really big shift of more mainstream folks who initially were marching like you see these big evangelical names getting on the bandwagon like marching showing up um being at protests and then now this last week there have been even tons more large like Christian leaders coming out and saying black lives matter is a Trojan horse. It's an organization of Satan. That's John MacArthur who never uses satanic language very often. And I've, and then in all of my personal circles of people who think differently than me, there is this changing narrative. And I think that the, the pushback toward this progress has arrived this week in a way that, uh, that is going to be interesting how it goes forward. Like we, everyone knew it was coming, but this is, and and I think I'm going to say something that might be a little bit difficult, um, and it might be centering just my experience. But this is this is my perspective. Until white people in progressive Christian circles or otherwise truly understand how defrauded they are, be from white supremacy, what it's done to them to, in terms of their soul. Like financially, it's benefited us. Absolutely. It's, you know, given us uh, preferential treatment and jobs and loans and like places to live. But until we truly grasp how how much damage and violence it has done to us as people, I don't think we're ever going to really try to dismantle it. When you benefit in every single other way, it's hard to even see that, that it's not a benefit, you know, because that's how we evaluate all our lives. But but being overvalued, and I'll speak as like the good kid in my family or whatever, <laughs> right? Being overvalued has effects. It has effects over a long period of time that are detrimental to a person's emotional and psychological health. And so until like we can wrap our eyes around that as, as it's one thing to, to be in allyship with other people. It's another thing to fight oppression because you know it's hurting everybody, including yourself. And so hopefully we can get there eventually. It's interesting you say that, Alan, and I'm just, this is just a question that I'm, I would have for, for all of you, because I feel like 
my experience is probably a little less in terms of this idea, but I remember like growing up in evangelicalism, the soul was always a subject of conversation like this, this internal need, desire, want. And that language was less so in, for my, from my experience in progressive circles. And I'm, I'm wondering if we're look, we're talking about the manifestation of white supremacy in, in progressive circles, maybe one of those problems is, is that, is there a, a real constant theological framework that can give someone in a progressive Christian circle that longing and that questioning of their soul? Like, what is this doing to me internally? Because it does seem to be more and and this is from someone that's why I like progressive Christianity. I'm not a soul person, you know what I mean? Like I don't I don't like to speak in that kind of language, but I also acknowledge that there there are longings for us and that there's something you know, I would more I would term it more psychological or whatever, but that's beside the point. But I'm wondering because there's not that framework and at least in my experience of progressive mainline whatever we want to call it that that soul language is gone, so it's probably it, maybe it's harder for that to take root. I don't know. Well, in our in our family's transition away from fundamentalism into, you know, just nothing for for a fair time, um, and then, you know, just sort of by some strange things coming back to Christianity in a progressive sense, our older son Bonnie's and my older son, he said, you know, because I don't think this progressive Christian thing's ever going to work. I was like, why not? And this was like just a few months into it. He's like, they don't care about people's souls. It's like the conservatives, they actually care. Now, they're messed up with how they care about it. But the progressives don't seem to even – it's not even on their radar. I I tell people in my congregation all the time that I feel like I'm more of an evangelical now than I ever have been in terms of saving people's souls (laughs) Um, because of the work I do with queer kids, right? And I think it's really important for Alan to invite us to recognize the stuff that, that we are taking in that is toxic to us. I often will invite um, my junior hires when I'm talking about, you know, eighth stuff. I will ask them to close their eyes and imagine heaven, even though that's like something Jeff is like cringing. But, you know, <laughs> heaven, whether you believe in heaven or not, let's pretend for a moment you do. Close your eyes and whether you believe in angels or not, close your eyes and tell me what those angels look like. And if they're all white, there's a major, I have a major concern about how you understand God and and eternity. And so many of my young people will open their eyes and be like, oh my God, I never thought of that. And for my young people of color, when they open their eyes and say, oh yeah, all the angels were white for me too. Right? It's it's like, this is the system, everyone. This is where our souls reside, isn't a tradition that all you see are white people, including a white Jesus. And we have to begin to deconstruct all of that because it is not good for our soul. Yeah, absolutely. And Jeff, I think your question, it's, it's, a, it's a great question. This is why I keep talking about another like really bad word in progressive Christian <laughs> circles, and that is sin. Um. Because I think in, we like to think of sin systemically and in, in the progressive Christian world and like any confession or, or um, collective experience of sin is about systems of oppression. And the truth is, sin is also, it resides in the individual as well. I don't think it does in the way 
that the conservative Christian or the way that I grew up, I don't think it is that at all. But I do think that um, in order for us to denounce whiteness and to begin to heal and reclaim an identity outside of white-mindedness, it seems like there has to be some acknowledgement of toxicity, of like harm done, of of sin. I mean, we have a theological word for it. So um, that's another conversation probably for another time. But it's hard for me to talk about white supremacy without bringing up the word sin. Which again, I think speaks to this idea of progressive Christianity, like you're saying, Bonnie, that we don't want to talk about those things. Um, We are blameless. A purity culture. I loved how you brought that out. Casey, I like in hearing you talk about the white Jesus and the white angels kind of thing. And this is just one really small part of the whole conversation. But um, like we posted that meme of, you know, Jesus joking around being like, and so I was there, the only white guy in Jerusalem. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is kind of funny or whatever. And people commented and they're like, well, you got to blame the Renaissance artists. You know, you, that that's who you should blame. Shouldn't blame me. And there's this sense that we're complete, uh, still individualized, completely divorced from history in any way when, yeah, it might've been the Renaissance that gave way to colonialism around the world. And, you know, um, took people's culture and language and names away from, from them, but we're born into that and we're born into the handle side of the sword. At least I, you know, I am. And, and what do I do with that? I can choose to like apologize for holding the sword, or I can turn it back toward the the thing that created it in the first place. And we're still arguing about whether we should take white Jesuses down in our, <laughs> in our churches, you know, like there's a huge national conversation about whether stained glass windows with Robert E. Lee should come down or like inside of a church. And we still have, frankly, yeah, anyway, I'm going to start getting a little bit what, crazy. What's but. really interesting about this, this white Jesus thing that's kind of emerged in broader circles is um, I, I've started responding just with white Jesus is a lie, like on some of this stuff. And the the white folks in the conversation, they want to go to historicity. They're like, that's correct. You know, Jesus was actually of, of Middle Eastern origin, so he would have been, you know, darker skin or whatever. And the people of color are like, I mean, they get it. They get what white Jesus is a lie actually means. Right. Yep. And well, yeah, you're right. It's, that, it's that was really the interesting. They're like, oh, yeah, Jesus was tan and fit because he walked everywhere. I was like, what the hell does that have to do with anything? At all. Well, I mean, going to that, you know, you talk about blame the Renaissance painters or whatever, maybe for initially, but I did a class on the history of Jesus and film. And that is the primary motivator in terms of perpetuating our imagery of who Jesus is from the very beginning of how that's gone. And most of the images that people have of Jesus is not necessarily the still images that they have, but a lot of times the films that they use to to evangelize, to put things out there, to talk about who Jesus is. And the fact that in that in various stages of Jesus films, when anyone who was a person of color would portray Jesus, the outrage that came from a lot of places it's it's very telling and then not only that but even i mean just it, it, i mean that's all a side note but it's just film has played a huge role in the way that we bring jesus bring the white jesus into our conversation and into our, our worship i mean it's 
It's huge. Oh, I don't. I don't think it's a side note at all, man. Because everybody's taking that stuff in. White people and people of color are taking that in, and then we take it in. We see that as the standard. Like that's what right looks like. And what does white Jesus do? I mean, white Jesus doesn't fight for justice or join a protest. Like I, I, I was told by people that Jesus never protested against injustice, <laughs> and I'm like, what? Are you, like what? That. Like, that's why he, he wouldn't have been executed if that wasn't the case. Right. Like, he was executed by the state. Even something as basic as that, I know it's kind of funny, but even something as basic as that, we know white people don't protest because the system, you know, benefits them. That's that's the underlying, like, motivation in there. They may not have held signs, but they held palm branches. I mean, we're going to talk <laughs> about protesting That's to say that that's not existent but, in... And, and so, just, just so I'm, not, I'm clear and I'm not trying to, like, you know paint different people a different way or whatever but it, it's it's like a such an individualistic reading of Jesus I guess is what I'm trying to say rather than having this uh, like a uh, a totally non-white perspective like Jesus you know the wasn't wasn't the the white Jesus that we interpret now so it's not just the iconography it's also what does that translate into in our lives and in our spaces well and our theology is white I mean how how much of right. our basic theology is based off of uh you know white german men who, you know, I mean, it, it's telling that, and a lot of people to get a seminary education, they have to, and they want to go further. A lot of them have to learn German, like to to really take in most of the the information out there. So that's true. There's a lot to work with, and I mean, to the fact that even like liberation theology and stuff like that is only something that we've been talking about since maybe the 60s or 70s. How can we not reform the entire thing? The 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 books that we're reading and the theology that we're putting out there like there's still so much work to do process theology may have a little help for us in this moment (laughs) um you know the way things come into the world through us is we incorporate history into every moment of becoming because we can only become with what is available to us as given to us by those who went before and by those who are re- we are in relationship with right now. And each individual's becoming process, you decide what you incorporate into your becoming. If you read white German theologians and that's all you read, that's what becomes, that, that then gets incorporated into your process of becoming. And it's what you make available to all the future becomings that will be in relationship with you. So, I mean, we we can, like, collectively, change is so possible. It's so possible. It just takes decisions, many, many, many decisions in relationship with many, many, many other decisions. We decide together that we're going to take down statues that have been venerated all of this time because what we want for the future is we want those statues put in the correct context context instead of the venerated context that they have been. And I mean, just by looking at a statue, you're taking that into your process of becoming. And it works in your, it works on you as like, this is how it's supposed to be. This is how it's supposed to be. This is who we're supposed to worship. This is who we're supposed to honor. So, I mean, the things, the shifts that we're making now change what's available to the future in really exciting ways. What Minneapolis did, the city council, they have changed what is available to the future for their city by making that decision together. So, um, yeah, I mean, process for me anyways, gives me some really um, like hopeful ways of thinking about 
what's possible. So what's available to like future progressive Christians? That's a great question. Like what are, what are we making available to them? Well, to us. To us. How is this conversation changing what's available? How are we incorporating one another's insights and wisdom, creating this, this, what is now going to be its own thing, a conversation that we're having? And how does that then become available to the future becomings? And I just want to lift up what you said, Bonnie. Like it's many, it's many decisions. I feel like for a lot of us, we're like, oh, I'm going to decide to not be racist. Or I'll just decide to educate myself. And it's like, that's a great decision. But there's like a thousand decisions in the future that you're going to be making around this. Nope. You just need to buy a shirt, post a meme, and put it at the top of your bulletin. And you are good. Like, that is that is <laughs> there, That's it. a little triggering. <laughs> Honestly, being in some of those spaces, it's a little triggering to have buttons. That's like, well, if I wear a button that says Black Lives Matter, but I never do anything that demonstrates that, like, it's, it's tough. It's hard. Well, look, Alan. Wear the Black Lives Matter button. Right. No, totally. Like, I'm serious. That in and of itself is an act because it puts everyone around you on notice. And that's important because no one, no one knows that by looking at you. Like I, I, saw, I saw an African-American man, a black man walking uh, in the grocery store the other day. Um, well, he was in the grocery store. He wasn't like doing laps in the grocery <laughs> store. But his shirt just said, I matter. That was it. I was like, dang, I mean, it's, you know, obvious, but to see it and, and there's an embodiment attached to it was really powerful. So you walking around with the black lives matter button. Right. I get that. Uh, I, I I get that. I guess the reason I I said that was I, I totally know symbolic, like symbolic power is important and it's a huge part of our experience of of reality. I've just seen white people co-opt entire movements for their own ends to make them again to make whiteness more comfortable so i've seen some people using buttons like that to like lift up their progressive i'm a progressive leader so i have all these different buttons but it but really not sacrificing a whole lot and it actually like translating to can i be honest like some people just get racial training because they know that they'll be able to apply to other jobs that like they could put that on their cv like look i went through this training and now like i'm a better progressive christian leader does that make sense like it's not necessarily your intention matters and i think sometimes in our progressive circles we're like wow this makes you a better progressive minister or or a more it's better than joining the clan for a leg up. <laughs> I, I know that. Yeah, that's <laughs> I mean, true. look, you it's, know. It's just like, that's, but, but what I'm trying to say is that's one decision out of a thousand that need to be made. Right. Sure. And I, I love that Bonnie's calling us to like endurance, like definitely meet all these, dis- and know there's more decisions to come that, you're, that you haven't. Yeah. And in the process um, way of thinking, it's not just the decision that you make, but it's how you make the decision. It's how the becoming happens. I mean, that's that's why I, I tend to be um, a pacifist is because the how we get things done matters in the end. And there's never an end, right? It's always open. So, yeah, if you're just wearing a Black Lives Matter button, the how that went into incorporating – because I, you know, the truth is like Black Lives Matter was very controversial two, month, three, two months ago. It was those same people wouldn't have touched it with a 10 foot pole often because it was just too 
I don't know. They had a million reasons, I guess. Yeah, three wouldn't. and four years ago, people looked at them. That's right. I, I very much remember how people would treat anytime it was like that phrase phrasing was used. You'd easily be fired from your position. But wearing wearing that button puts you at a greater likelihood of having to face next steps than not wearing the button. Because someone's going to give you a look. Someone's going to be like, oh, you're one of them. Or, you know, all, all kinds of things. And then, you know, you decide you, you have to like, well, that was really uncomfortable. So I'm not going to wear the button anymore. Or boy, that was really uncomfortable. I can't imagine what it feels like to have to live in black skin every day. So the button's a step. It's not, it's not a destination. So how do we dismantle white supremacy inside of progressive Christian circles? I know there's not like one answer for everyone. We obviously have to have tons of answers, but some churches are selling off property or part of their endowment that was literally made through slavery. Like there are some churches that were built by slaves that are a part of uh, mainline traditions. And they're having the hard questions of what do we do with our multi-million dollar endowment that still employs white people. Like after all this time, those are hard questions to have. But like, what about like, you know, all of us other churches that, uh, that are relatively new. I think it's true when I hear people say that movements die for lack of vision. And I think there needs to be some clear vision on, on ways that we can tackle white supremacy inside of progressive, progressive Christian circles, if it's going to move forward. I mean, if we, if we know that whiteness has, um, pillaged, has, has, is responsible for cheating and stealing and killing and oh, murdering um, and raping and all of that, then how do you make that right? That's what progressive Christian churches, I think, could ask. I mean, we have a whole tradition that helps us know how to make it right. I would love to see progressive Christian movement calling for reparations, like as a whole movement. Defund the police. That's a good step. But then how do you make this right? How do we atone? And for those people who are really uncomfortable still with defund the police, there's great resources out there to find out like the origination of police departments being in catching slaves that have run away from the South and and how that institutional racism has played a part in policing communities ever since. So like the thing by John Oliver recently was really good, but there's lots of other resources out there too. And we'll put some of those in the show notes as well. And there's also like real life current modern examples of defunding the police actually working and police reform, like making huge differences in communities. So we'll put some of that in the show notes. I ran a slash 171. And of all things, you guys remember veggie tales, right? <laughs> <laughs> My bingo this card is, for this episode did not have veggie tales on it. <laughs> I just want to say that the perfect way to wrap up Rajiv. <laughs> I, I can't remember the dude's name, but Bob, the tomato, he does a thing on um, privilege, right? Institutionalized. Well, yeah, sort of like how does systemic racism S- work? Systemic racism. What are you ta- What are you talking about? Bob the Tomato. He did a video. Does a thing on systemic racism, too. like recently, and yes. it's actually really good. I mean, it's it's a pretty good arc of the history, and he's you know he's really speaking to evangelicals, um, and and it's I I applaud it, and I, and I hope every white person watches it. All right. Any any final thoughts before we? pave way to continue this conversation later i'm just triggered i'd never thought that Rajiv would ever bring up veggie tales on uh on a podcast episode so Dude, I, I'm, I'm, having, 
I love Veggie Tales. <laughs> I still do. I think the the Veggie Tales Jonah movie was one of the best depictions awesome. of Jonah. Awesome ever, and yep. I I stand by that. Um, well, like they're in the belly of the whale and everything. Mm-hmm. It was it was great. And they're a kids movie that actually does the last scene, like the the depression scene of like uh, it's mm-hmm. it's wonderful. I'm I hats, hats off to them. Uh, <laughs> Getting the sidetracked. I think right. with this conversation, I'll just take what Bonnie just said with me, and that is progressives, Christian circles can start by calling out for reparations. And I think that there is a strong Christian tradition, right? Jesus talks to the tax collector and says, anybody you've defrauded, you go pay them back, and then you come follow me. And so maybe that's what I need to take with me and think pretty hard about is how can an act like being a faithful person in Obviously, some things can't ever be repaid, and there's grief that has to happen and repentance. Absolutely. Um, Some people talk about racial reconciliation, and I've heard people be like, I can't talk about that because there was nothing to reconcile to. Like, it's never been fair. And so I I get that. But maybe reparations is what we should all be working for. Not just, you know, not just like uh, playing the progressive game, but putting skin in it more. Our, Our own, like, on the line. Because I guarantee you, if progressive Christian ministers started standing up and saying, I'm calling for societal reparations, there's going to be pushback against that inside of their their church communities. And if you're listening and you're not a minister or you're not involved in church leadership, I can tell you from experience that your check that you put in that little thing that passes you in the morning speaks volumes to what decisions the church is going to make as a whole. So if you are attending a church, you call that shit out and you use your tithe or your giving or whatever, because I'm telling you, evangelical, progressive, it doesn't matter. That collection plate dictates the future of your church and you have power in your voice there. And I want to just point back to um, the episode that Bonnie Rajiv and I did on theologies, um, right? Um, there are other Christian traditions other than white German straight men. <laughs> a, a big part of understanding that you don't have to date white Jesus is knowing you have other options. Um, spend some time reading other stuff and listening to other theologians, because that's another part of this confronting uh, progressive Christianity is you can be progressive all you want, but if all you're reading uh, are the same people who look like you, who think like you, and who talk like you, you're still missing the damn point. Yeah, I, I th- this may not be an, uh, a, a neat and tidy concluding thought, but leapfrogging to reparations concerns me because it could be, it, it's just charity. It's like, hey, we've, we, okay, we gave you some shit, now let's move on. Uh, I, I think what the work that needs to happen before reparations becomes a legitimate act of penance and restorative justice is a rejection of white mindedness. And, and white mindedness is a late stage terminal illness that can be countered. Life can be had, but it's going to take a long period of treatment. It's going to take you know, some aches and pains and a lot of people rallying around one another for recovery to happen. But until the rejection, until white people undertake the rejection of white mindedness, reparations will only be charity and will not lead to anything lasting. 
Well, let us know what you think. You can add your voice to this particular conversation by commenting at the show notes at arenacast.com slash 171. Uh, also in the show notes, you'll find relevant links of all the things that we've talked about and a complete list of all other ways to like, follow, and contact the show. That's arenacast.com slash 171. And this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Pacific Standard Time on Facebook Live and YouTube Live, we will continue this particular conversation with you, our listeners. Uh, if you can, If you can't make it live, uh, please feel free to email Email us your thoughts at podcast at irenacast.com, and we will incorporate that into the continuing the conversation on Monday. So on the other side of the music, we are going to be playing Playlist, or we're going to be doing a segment called Playlist, and we're going to be talking protest songs this week. So I think that's, that's appropriate considering our conversation. So we'll see you on the other side of the music. Right, so we are on the other side of the music, and we're going to be doing uh, a. This is kind of a, a segment that we've developed, or that we came up with in the midst or the beginning stages of the current pandemic uh, that is facing us all. And we were confused and angry, so we decided let's put together a playlist of anger songs, things that things that we listen to when we're upset or angry. And um, you can check that playlist out along with this playlist that we're about to present it to the world on uh, irenacast.com slash Spotify. So we're setting up some Spotify playlists, playlists under that. So this might be an ongoing segment. So, you know, let us know if you have other themes or emotions you'd like us to put some playlists together for, because we are not only progressive Christian experts, but music experts as well. So <laughs> I don't know about that. <laughs> Okay, uh, so we're just gonna go around. We'll each we each have three songs. We're gonna go around and and make everyone you know pleasant. So so Rajiv, let's let's start with you. What is your what is uh, your first protest? Song? Okay, I actually have four, so I'm just I'm just taking four. No, you have so to, my three. We're my, gonna do one at a time. So one at a time, one round, and then the second one, and then you can name one in honorable mentions. But it's got to be a 15 song playlist. We can't. Yeah. Okay. We'll see about that. <laughs> um, so. My my first one is Fight the Power by Public Enemy, and um, it has history because they take Fight the Power from the Isley Brothers song Fight the Power, so it's a kind of a bringing forward of, of an existing movement, and um, it was essentially a response to Spike Lee's invitation to do a song for the movie Do the Right Thing. So there's there's a lot of connection there, but it's one of my all time favorite songs. I mean, Public Enemy is one of my all time favorite bands. So, but fight the power, crank it up to ten. It's a perfect one to start with. If I remember right, too, that was probably one of the like the the biggest like mainline calls out call outs of Elvis Presley in the middle of that song, where you didn't well and John Wayne. Ru- well, yeah, yeah. It's like mm-hmm. f him and John Wayne. Yeah. I can cross that one off my list. I, I have ones that I'm ready to cross off the list because I still have a feeling we're going to go. But that that is excellent way to start the the thing. Bonnie, how about you? Okay. I, I like protest songs you can sing in the shower. <laughs> so uh, the first one that came to mind is Everybody's Got a Right to Live. It w- it originated in the 1968 Poor People's Campaign. And um, I've been able to sing it with people uh, in various protests and love it. But actually, the Poor People's Campaign, and maybe we could include this too on our show notes, they have a songbook 
which I highly recommend. You can download it. It has um, links to hear the songs and then you too can sing them in the shower or wherever you are. <laughs> it, they're very catchy and get into yourself. Nice. Casey, how about you? Um, I'm a big fan of Bob Dylan. Mm-hmm. Times are a change in. Yes. No, that was my Classic. next one. I uh, was reading the lyrics to Times are a change in as a start to worship. And one of my congregants when quarantine started was like, did you know, pastor? And I'm like, what are you talking about? And she's like, everything has changed overnight. It's almost like we were reading that in preparation for what was to come. And I'm like, mm. well, I'm glad that's what you take away. That's great. You know? <laughs> so, yeah. Times are changing. I love it. Come gather around people. I didn't know that you read that to your congregation. That's so cool. I I was just going to say, I've been listening to it at night for the last like couple months and I had no idea that like you were, you were using it too. It seems so that was the number one song that came to my mind. It just seems so like right on, especially the line that talks about, uh, you know, come senators and congressmen, please heed the call. Don't mm. stand in the hallway. Don't block yep. up the hall. Yep. And then down later come mothers and fathers throughout the land and don't criticize what you can't understand. Your sons and your daughters are beyond your command. Your old road is rapidly aging. There are so many kids who are doing the work their parents never did. And it is causing like there was a TikTok. I I don't agree with this necessarily, uh, but there was a TikTok challenge to film yourself talking about race with your parents without them seeing and then posting it. And there are all these like young teenagers posting these like pretty crazy conversations with their parents where they're talking about systemic racism and their parents are cracking down hard on how like wrong their children are. So that feeling of like, you know, your old path, you need to like, like there's, there's new things coming, you know, and this, anyway, I love that song. Thank you, Casey. And it originated in their parents' generation, that song. (laughs) Yeah. Isn't that ironic? (laughs) Wasn't it Bob Dylan who said he tried singing though? He's like, we tried to change the world through song. I've been down that road. We need something else now. Bob Dylan's the OG (laughs) in so many ways. (laughs) all right alan i'm with casey that's the that that was my number one song do you have another one yeah i I have two more uh we shall overcome is one song that i really love Mm -hmm. um it's an old one and it's been done by a lot of people but just the hope in that song um it's easy for like my heart to just get caught up in it and to believe the people who are singing it and believe the mothers and fathers and grandparents that have sung it and think that someday we're going to. Is there a particular so, artist that has done it that you like more than not others? Not a particular one. I mean, there's always like Pete, Pete Seeger, uh, who sang it like a while ago. Um, but there's, you know, there's so many different artists that have covered it. So I think I don't have any particular one. I like it when congregations sing it that I've been been in, uh, when pr- in protest marches where people are singing it. It just there's something about it that's pretty magical for me. Nice. Um, I my first one, kind of a weird pick, but it's the first thing that came to mind. Like it's what I've been listening to recently, but it's a song off of Ultra Bridge's latest album called "Take the Crown," and it's more of like that aggressive lyrics of like you know. This is done. We're we're taking this. <laughs> like we're gonna 
we're gonna we're gonna be victorious in this. We're gonna to move forward. Because as I was going through these songs, it's hard to like like there's different postures that you take in a protest, right? And uh, I always like to start with <laughs> aggression. <laughs> so there we go. <laughs> All right, Rajiv, back to you. All right. Uh, my next one is O Freedom, which dates back to the Civil War era. It's an African-American freedom song, and it got carried forward and was very popular in the civil rights movement as well. And it's it's one of those I uh, just love. Love the song. Love the song. And it, yeah, it's determination and a commitment of one's own life to the cause. Very nice. Bonnie, number two. Okay, number two. I have four as well, so maybe I should do two now and then finish up with my last one. Um, another sing-along song that I, I really love is I Shall Not Be Moved. Um, I think uh, it was Mississippi John Hurt. I looked it up to see who actually originated the song. But I, that's a beautiful song of standing strong in one's commitments. And since I hope that along with white supremacy, we also deconstruct, dismantle um, male supremacy, my one of my favorite protest songs for that is No Doubt, Just a Girl. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a great one. Very nice. I like it. All right, Casey. I got a hymn for you. The Canticle of Turning is a hymn that I, I have been singing a lot lately. And so some of the lyrics to that are, from the halls of power to the fortress tower, not a stone will be left unstone. Let the king beware, for your justice tears every tyrant from his throne. The hungry poor shall weep no more for the food they can never earn. There are tables spread, every mouth be fed, for the world is about to turn. Um, and then it's, you know, let my heart, you know, my heart shall sing of the day you bring, let the fires of your justice burn, wipe away all tears for the dawn draws near and the world is about to turn. Do you, Casey, do you know the context that was written in? Beautiful. I don't know where it comes from. I just have been singing it a lot. Yeah. It's, it's new to me. Those are powerful words, man. I'm going to look that up. Alan, what about you? What's your number two? <laughs> Okay, so so this is yeah. I I'm new to protest songs because growing up, protest was not something that was. Um, I mean, it was sinful. It was wrong. You were never supposed to do it. That's what we were taught. And uh, I remember being in uh, Cleveland a couple years ago with some colleagues that I had just met, and two of them like were singing songs from communist camp that they went to growing up or whatever. <laughs> They're like doing their little songs, like pro union songs, like this and that. And I was like getting caught up in it. And one of them is singing all these Irish songs. Cause there's a lot of like socialist Irish songs back in the day fighting, you know, the power. And I just like got really like, nostalgic and sad, but also really hopeful. And I was like, Oh my God, there's a whole history of people I can belong to inside so this feel. And so I, I went on and started looking up some protest songs. and I fell down the well a little bit with some of the older ones. So another Pete Seeger song that I like since then is Which Side Are You On? And it's a song that originated in the 30s with coal miners. Um, and there was a coal miner union. And one of the daughters, one of the coal miners wrote it. But I love We Shall Overcome because it's this like unitive song. And I love this song, Which Side Are You On? Because it, 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 it reminds me that there are sides that you can't, 
you can't just excuse yourself from from the tensions. And so listening on to that on the way to uh you know protest a nuclear weapons facility like we did uh in California last year was really powerful for me. Kind of on the opposite spectrum of my first pick, uh just like hopeful sing along kind of thing. I just I'm a sucker for Midas Yahoo's one day. I love that that song that just acknowledges where we're at and that they're yes. a hope for something more. Like I just, that song gets me every time. So I'm, uh, that's my, that's my number two pick. I, I love that one. Do you ever break out in song? The all, chorus all the time, all the yeah. time. Yeah. That's the best. It's good. Have you seen the, the 10,000 people version where they sing it in, yes. uh, in Hebrew and, uh, in Arabic and in English. That is a very moving rendition of it oh man that i love it's that hard video. not to watch it i love that video <laughs> oh every time every time it's so good i'll put that in the show notes because that just that uh that whole thing is wonderful yeah for sure all right final round rajiv back to you okay well i'm going to throw my two last two out here so my th- this next one is also a hymn that's been kind of wrongly co-opted it's battle hymn of the republic written by Julia Ward Howe, who was a pretty well-known abolitionist. The original melody was taken from John Brown's body. So it's got like deep abolitionist roots. And the version that is that my younger son, Nick, shared with me that I love, I kind of re-fell in love with the song, is by The Lower Lights. So I'm hoping that that's the version we're able to get up on our playlist. But it's it's powerful, it's haunting, it's moving. So that's that's a good one, uh, Battle Hymn of the Republic. And it's a stripped-down sort of folk version. It's really, really good. Uh, and, and then my final one is a new one by the artist formerly known as The Dixie Chicks, now known as The Chicks, uh, their song March. And the video is so powerful. Um, just been a fan of them for a long time, and this one just really is really good. Um, so I think we should get Woody Guthrie in here somewhere. Um, and the one, the song of his that I'd like to lift up is not one that he ever recorded or uh, published while he was alive. But it's called Old Man Trump, recently found by a researcher looking at his stuff. And it's about Fred Trump, Donald Trump's father. What? And what's interesting, yes, look it up, Old Man Trump. And what's interesting is it's really about racial issues and housing. Like some of the, the the lyrics are, I suppose that old man Trump knows just how much racial hate he stirred up in that blood pot of human hearts when he drawed that color line here at his Beach Haven family project. Beach Haven ain't my home. No, I just can't pay this rent. My money's down the drain and my soul is badly bent. Beach Haven is Trump's tower where no blo- black folks come to roam. Oh, no, no, old man Trump. My old Beach Haven ain't my home. So um, I think we should put that out there. Yeah. No yep. way. Wow. Yeah. For those listeners who don't know who Woody Guthrie is, he's the one that the famous one who had the sticker that says this machine kills fascists and he's singing against fascists and stuff. Listen I to can't any believe Woody that Guthrie body. song, actually. What the heck? Yeah. This, oh, yeah. The, somebody, I think in 2016, this, this, uh, these lyrics were uncovered in an, in an old journal of his or something. Some researcher found it. Yeah, and you can find it at woodguthrie.org. So 
And and start a petition and pick an artist to actually like turn that into a song. <laughs> they they actually like you can license it if you are an artist and you would like to perform it. And I think there are some artists who have performed it. Uh, I don't know how big of names they are, but it's it's new. It's just being newly circulated. Wow. So Will Kaufman was a, a scholar and professor at the University of Central Lancashire, and he found it in his journals in Tulsa, Oklahoma. There you go. Stored. That is so cool. That's not an accident. No. By the that's way. That's unbelievable. Well, yeah. dang. We should have had you go last. That would have been the one to <laughs> finish know. on. <laughs> so sorry, Casey. You're next. <laughs> Exclusively on Arenicast, right? Yeah, for real. Um, I have two also, Rajiv. So the first is anytime I can sing in the march, um, ain't nobody going to turn us around. Yes. Mm, um, love that one. That's another just anthem in my heart always because I deeply believe that, you know, like I believe that we are moving towards this arc of justice. Like we are builders, we are walking on it all at the same time. Um, and no matter what kind of hateful force comes ahead of us, nothing will turn us around. And so that's really important to me. And the last is um, do any of you know who Soja is? <laughs> they are a reggae band um, that I super love. And um, one of their songs is uh, Everything Changes. And it's pretty good. So Sounds good. All right, Alan, did you think of one in the the round? Uh, for the final one, I'll, there, there's a song at the end of uh, Fahrenheit 11.9, uh, the newer movie by, um, uh, why am I skipping out? Is it Michael Moore. And it was when I heard it, it just like it rooted me to my seat and it's called with God on our side, but it's a newer version done by an artist. I don't know how to say his name, but it's K non and it's amazing. So give it a look. Um, my, my last one w- is, uh, uh, words I never said by Lupe fiasco. Um, that really, it's a good song. If you haven't heard Lupe fiasco at all. Find his stuff. He's listen good. to it. It's really. I got to see him live by Re- total oh. accident. I'm jealous. Yeah, it was fun. Nice. Was fun. Did we, we didn't have any credence. Clearwater. Fortunate son. That's a great one. That's a honorable, good one. Honorable yeah. mention. That's a good one. Yeah, that's a good one. It's a little. I'm glad we didn't go with it's some overused. Some it's obvious overused. ones. <laughs> yeah, it's overused for like war settings and stuff, but that's not how it was originally written. It's a cliche in Vietnam movies at this point, right? Um, all right. Well, we will put this playlist on Spotify. The last one we put, I will, I will take everyone's picks and I will analyze the lyrics and I will craft a story from this playlist because it is important that when we have a playlist, that it is not just songs thrown together and random. If you have playlists that you're just playing randomly, you are doing it wrong. And <laughs> I'll just finish out with some <laughs> Jeff, Jeff, the fundamentalist. It's true. It's true. Uh, So we'll we'll put that on Spotify. Uh, Give us your thoughts. Listen to it. And if you have your own protest song, you can let us know and we can we can talk about that also on our continuing the conversation if you'd like as well. Um, We don't address the the segments enough in our continuing the conversation, but I guess our conversations are just so good that, you know, (laughs) we don't have time for that. Uh, So. Uh, check it out. It'll be in the show notes. And then if you go to irenacast.com slash Spotify, you can see all the lists as we begin to curate them through these segments throughout the coming 
months and years. So, uh, yeah, so that'll do it for us this week. If you enjoyed Irenicast and want to join the work we are doing, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenicast.com slash PayPal. Uh, we are committed to keeping the show for free for listeners, but there are costs involved and your financial support helps. That's irenicast.com slash PayPal. Irenicast is also a nonprofit organization, so any donations are tax deductible. For all the other ways that you can support the show, you can go to irenicast.com slash support. And you can also support the show by simply subscribing or telling a friend, hey, I listen to this great podcast. Tag us in a conversation. We would love that. Um, we, we always appreciate our <laughs> Irenevangelists. I don't know. I can't think of a... <laughs> I don't know about that, uh, that one, frankly. I'm just joking. We, ju- we just lost people. We did. We did. It's okay. I'm just going to be me. <laughs> so, yes, uh, support the show, all that good stuff, and uh, we're out of here. So for this week, I'm Jeff. It's your boy, Alan. I'm Bonnie. It's Casey. This is Rajiv. Peace. Thanks for joining the conversation. Peace.